This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. I'm very excited to have a totally different format on the show. Yes, it's still rapid fire, uh, but instead of my brother going back and forth talking about recently published articles, today's episode is going to focus on women's health, specifically women's heme health. And I have an outstanding list of speakers who I'm going to be chatting with today. So let's just jump in. First up is Dr. Jen Teichman. All right. So Dr. Teichman, welcome to the show, first and foremost. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yes, it's an absolute pleasure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your study? And I hear it's an award-winning study as well, but um, I'll let you go first with a quick overview of what you studied. Sure. So we did a fairly large retrospective cohort study of pregnant women in Ontario. And we were using laboratory data only, provided very kindly by an outpatient private laboratory called Dynacare, which is the second largest laboratory in the province. Most of your listeners have probably heard of Life Labs. That's the largest lab in, in Ontario, the second largest being Dynacare. And they offered us unrestricted access to laboratory data on pregnant women. So it's important to note this was outpatient lab data only. So women that are followed by obstetricians in hospital, for example, we didn't capture those women or women that, of course, go to a different laboratory are not included in this study. And the idea of the study was to ask a very simple question. It was to ask, how frequently are we screening pregnant women for iron deficiency in pregnancy? So it's a question of physician practice, not so much of prevalence of a disease, but how are we as physicians doing at identifying what is known to be a very pervasive problem in pregnancy? Yeah, and I quite like that because it's very simple. You know, the simpler, the better. So if I have this right, you conducted this cohort study across the entire province of Ontario and asking a very simple question, you know, how often are pregnant women being screened for iron deficiency in pregnancy? Do I have that right? Exactly. And then we wanted to know, okay, what are the clinical and demographic factors that predict for whether a woman, or actually I should say a female, gets iron deficiency screening in pregnancy? So those were our secondary objectives. Okay. And what did you find? Are we doing an outstanding job on screening women or is there some room for improvement? Well, I'm sorry to say that we are not doing an outstanding job. And I think that's probably why this paper did get a lot of attention at our most recent annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. So as physicians, we are doing a pretty poor job, actually, of screening for iron deficiency in our pregnant patients. What we found essentially was that of the women that we included in our study, and we had a very interesting definition of pregnancy, actually, we did not look at beta HCG testing. I'll talk about the definition in a second. But if you just look at all of our pregnant patients, the prevalence of iron deficiency in that population was quite high. It was about 50%. And I should also mention that our definition of iron deficiency was a ferritin of less than 30 so that's a pretty well-accepted cutoff now for iron deficiency across different populations. So 50%, one in two pregnant patients in our province, in our high-income public healthcare setting, is iron deficient. About 60% of patients got at least one ferritin test in pregnancy. So 40% of patients had no iron deficiency screening, no appropriate iron deficiency screening. That doesn't mean they didn't have a transparent saturation, for example, but they did not have a ferritin test. 
Yeah, and so you're totally right. This clearly we're not doing an outstanding job. And I think you've highlighted a couple pearls. I think the number one pearl here is a ferritin is a terrific test to rule in iron deficiency. And that cutoff of less than 30 makes perfect sense to me. And the nice thing about a ferritin, it's easy to do. It's an inexpensive test. So, you know, how can we sort of move forward? How can we improve a practice? What are some uh, key messages uh, to deliver? So the first thing I want to jump on is you mentioned the cost of a ferritin test. I think that's a really great point. In Ontario, a ferritin test costs three bucks. So it's considerably less expensive than the cost of, let's say, treating these women with intravenous iron later in pregnancy when we have failed to identify their iron deficiency and it's their third trimester and now they're profoundly anemic. So actually, we don't have a cost savings analysis to prove this, but I suspect it would actually be considerable cost savings to the province to do iron deficiency screening in all pregnant patients. To answer your actual question, I think that's really what it's about. Right now, our prenatal guidelines in Ontario do not recommend routine ferritin testing in pregnancy. The guidelines that touch on this internationally are hugely variable. So American guidelines, Canadian guidelines, Australian guidelines, Nordic guidelines, they all recommend something different when it comes to iron deficiency screening in pregnancy. The most common recommendation is just to screen with the hemoglobin and look for anemia, which you and I both know is not really going to be very helpful in detecting, number one, iron deficiency, number two, response to iron replacement. So a hemoglobin is not a good marker of a response to iron, oral iron therapy. And number three, it's not going to tell you anything about the severity of that person's iron deficiency. So guidelines that recommend for iron deficiency screening with a hemoglobin, throw them out the window. Some guidelines recommend screening with a MCV, so basically doing ferritin testing in women who are microcytic in pregnancy. But that also has been met with a lot of criticism because MCV is variable in pregnancy as well. So there's really only actually a couple of guidelines that recommend ferritin testing in pregnancy. Australian guidelines and Nordic guidelines are on the more liberal end of that spectrum. But essentially, the main point of our study is that we hope at some point we can advocate for this change in obstetrical and hematologic guidelines locally and internationally, and essentially say that ferritin testing should be part of prenatal screening, both in the first trimester and probably again later on in pregnancy, because we know that iron deficiency increases in both prevalence and severity as pregnancy progresses. Yep, you definitely got my vote for sure. I think it's uh, a simple solution. And you know, I worry because guidelines move slowly and changing guidelines doesn't always change practice, I've realized as well. You know, I wonder if, you know, why don't we just the next time a pregnant patient has a creatinine done, take some of that blood and just run a ferritin on it. Um, and then let's let's actually get going on this. But I guess you're probably right. The next steps are, you know, certainly targeting guidelines and then getting the information out there. Does that sound about right? I think the other thing too I would advocate for is patient awareness. So I'm not sure if some of your listeners are, you know, patients themselves, pregnant patients, but bring this up with your healthcare provider during your pregnancy. Ask them what your iron levels are and ask them for a ferritin test. It's a really easy, cheap test. And if identified early in pregnancy, iron deficiency is easily correctable with oral iron. 
Yeah, totally agree. And I guess I put the cart before the horse. But what if a pregnant woman says, ah, you know what? I feel fine. You know, I feel tired, but uh, I don't know. Lots of my friends who are pregnant feel tired. You know, what's the sort of response for why it's still important? Why is iron deficiency still important beyond just fatigue? There's a lot of data, mostly retrospective, that has shown poor outcomes in pregnant women who are iron deficient, not just for the mom, but for the baby as well. So I would say you might just feel tired, but it might have impacts on baby as well. In terms of impacts on mom, it has been shown that iron deficiency in pregnancy places mom at higher risk of needing a blood transfusion at the time of delivery. Blood transfusions, as we know, are not without risk. There's a lot of other data too about increased risk of neurocognitive developmental problems in the baby, so things like autism spectrum disorder. And actually, our colleague, Dr. Joel Ray at St. Michael's recently published a paper this year that showed that iron deficiency anemia early in pregnancy was associated with severe maternal morbidity and mortality. And what was most interesting, actually, about that paper was that it showed these adverse outcomes were happening at levels of anemia that we would actually consider normal for pregnant women. As you know, the cutoffs to to define anemia in pregnancy are lower than they are in a non-pregnant population. But maybe that's actually inappropriate. Maybe anemia in pregnancy should actually have a slightly higher hemoglobin cutoff. Totally. Yeah. And certainly moving away from just the hemoglobin and instead thinking about, no, but what is the ferritin? That's probably more important. All right. Terrific. Um, So thanks so much for for chatting about your project. I'm going to give it a quick summary for the listeners. You let me know if I got this right. Um, Big picture, you completed this study using data from across Ontario, outpatient labs from a specific lab provider. And the short version is that you found that 50% of women who are pregnant are iron deficient, as defined as a ferritin less than 30. It's a cheap test, it's an easy test, and it's totally actionable. So it's probably time that we start thinking about screening women in general with a ferritin test, probably early on in pregnancy. Does that sound about right? You nailed it, Mike. All right, perfect. Well, thanks so much for joining on the show. I really appreciate it. And we'll chat again soon. Thanks, Mike. All right, so we just heard all about a terrific project related to iron deficiency in pregnancy, and now we're going to change gears, but just a little bit, and we have Dr. Heather Vandermeulen, who's a hematology fellow also here at the University of Toronto. Dr. Heather Vandermeulen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your project, and uh, congrats on getting it published. That is not easy to get something published during residency or fellowship. So yeah, tell us more about the study you did. So this project actually came out of an observation from Dr. Schalzberg, who I know you'll be chatting with later. And so historically, the teaching was that women with inherited bleeding disorders are so sensitized to bleeding that they probably over-report postpartum hemorrhage. And so they probably over-report their bleeding symptoms. And this was actually totally out of keeping with what Dr. Schalzberg was seeing clinically. And so what we decided to do, because there was no evidence to support this claim, was to interview women with inherited bleeding disorders about their postpartum bleeding And it was a qualitative study. And what we actually ended up finding was the total opposite. And I think this is pretty in keeping with general themes that in medicine, we often dismiss women's health complaints. And that's what we found was that, in fact, these women were experiencing postpartum hemorrhage 
but we're so desensitized to heavy vaginal blood loss from having a lifetime of menorrhagia and heavy periods that in fact a lot of these women had undiagnosed postpartum hemorrhage that they had expected was just normal because they were so used to having heavy periods. Yeah, and you, you sort of hit on a good point here. Makes you wonder, where did that presumption come from? I mean, your study did a great job of sort of undercutting and disproving that assumption. So w- what are the next steps here? How can we sort of take this work and inform healthcare providers and women who are pregnant? Absolutely. So I think... There's a lot of education that we identified that needs to happen on a couple of fronts. So what we realized was that from a healthcare provider perspective, a lot of education needs to happen because when we tell women postpartum that if you're passing clots the size of golf balls, that that's abnormal, what we're actually missing is that you can have bleeding without clots, but if it lasts beyond six weeks, that can be excessive postpartum bleeding. And when you ask women if it's heavier than their period, what you're assuming is that they have a normal, quote unquote, normal period. Whereas these women, especially with inherited bleeding disorders, a lot of them have horrendously heavy periods. And so for them, having postpartum bleeding that resembles their regular menstrual period, in fact, is very abnormal. And so from a healthcare provider perspective, I think we need to be a lot better at describing what is normal and what's abnormal and really digging into what their normal bleeding is like so that we can help put it in context for them. Yeah, I completely agree. And even this idea of a golf ball size, it's sort of like, hmm, I wonder where that terminology, whose mouth is that terminology coming from? And, And that makes a lot of sense for how we can inform providers, probably you know, notably obstetricians, family docs, as well as midwives. And how about from a patient standpoint, how do we shift the conversation there? So I think for patients, especially with inherited bleeding disorders, what we realized is that these patients weren't actually getting any specific education about what postpartum hemorrhage means. And in fact, I was shocked when I spoke with them. Many patients, we asked all of them to define postpartum hemorrhage, and many actually had no idea what the term meant. And they knew the word hemorrhage. And in fact, there's a quote that really stuck with me where I'll paraphrase, but a woman was saying, you know, when I hear hemorrhage, I think you must be lightheaded, you must be having palpitations, passing out. That's what hemorrhage means. And so I wasn't having that. So I assumed it wasn't postpartum hemorrhage. And so I think there's a lot of reluctancy to talk about vaginal bleeding in society. And especially in the bleeding disorder community, I think we really need to make that conversation more comfortable and more commonplace so that we can actually talk about what's normal and what's not. Yeah, and I think that quote you're paraphrasing certainly kind of hits home as well. Just to think that that's what somebody is waiting for. Clearly, you know, we are not educating our patients about, you know, what is quote unquote normal versus not. And I think actually to follow up on that last point, yeah, you know, how do we normalize this, normalize the conversation and also talk about, okay, what might be, and I don't even want to use the word normal, but what's something that we should be talking more about with your physician, because maybe there are things we can do to help versus what could be, uh, I don't have a great word here, but uh, normal, I guess. Yeah. So I think podcasts like this and really bringing women's health to light, both amongst medical care providers, but also kind of in the general public is key to 
you know, making this more normal and opening up those conversations amongst patients. Because, you know, what we were realizing is that really the conversations that happen are between women and their sisters and women and their moms. And when you have a family and the whole family has von Willebrand's disease, their conversation about what a normal period is, is very different than if they were going to have a conversation with their friend or with their family doctor about what quote unquote normal vaginal blood loss is. And so really being able to have those conversations and having kind of that public discourse. I know Dr. Paula James in Kingston has a website called Take Control Period. And the whole point is really to help screen and talk about excessive vaginal blood loss and heavy periods and having those resources out there and making them very public, I think, you know, does a lot for helping facilitate these conversations. Certainly. I'll, I'll have to check that website out and I'll, I'll post it with the show notes. And it, it does remind me, I remember back to, you know, medical school and the sort of teaching was to ask women how many pads they're using and how often they're bleeding through their pads. And I remember the first time I asked a patient about that, like, pads I don't use pads and I just think to myself okay like clearly I don't know what I'm talking about here so I just think you're you're so right and it's terrific that that website is available so that all of us can sort of get better educated on the topic and just hearing you say that Dr. Schalzberg I remember her you know cautioning me about asking that question because when you actually dig deeper you'll find oh, okay you only change your pad four times a day but you spend eight hours, you know, just sitting on the toilet because you're having such heavy blood loss that you can't leave your bathroom. And so really, you know, asking deeper questions and really digging into it, you realize that the screening questions we're asking really aren't good enough. It sure sounds that way. So what are a few questions for our listeners to take away that they slash me can work towards using in clinical care? So when I'm screening for heavy menstrual bleeding, on top of a basic menstrual history, I always ask about flooding. So whether women are having to change sheets, whether they're having to change clothing due to flooding. I also ask about needing to change products in the middle of the night, as that can be a sign of heavy menstrual bleeding. But to be honest, what I find most enlightening is asking patients about the impact that their menstrual bleeding has on their quality of life. And this is really where you're going to pick up you know, the woman that stays home from work or that stays home from school because of heavy blood loss. And that should obviously be a red flag. And when I'm screening for secondary postpartum hemorrhage or, you know, heavy postpartum bleeding, I'm asking a lot of these same questions. Yeah, I quite like that. So um, see if I've summarized this correctly for our listeners. So you conducted a qualitative study looking at the experience of postpartum bleeding in women with inherited bleeding disorders. The assumption was that, uh, you know what, it probably wouldn't be that big of an issue and also that they would have such a good sense of what heavy menstrual bleeding might look like. And you realized, nope, that's not the case. And also, we're not asking good questions to screen for it. We're not empowering and informing women about what to expect. And I think the other big pearl I've taken away from this talk is when we're taking a menstrual history, probably a more important question than the number of pads is, you know, how is this affecting you? How is this affecting your quality of life? Because I think if it's affecting quality of life or it's affecting work, clearly that ain't normal and we should try to do something to help. Does that sound reasonable? I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Absolutely. 
All right. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining, uh, especially I'm joining with a one month at home. So thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the show sometime soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. All right. So now we're going to, again, sort of slightly change gears. We were talking about postpartum hemorrhage and bleeding disorders. And now we're going to talk about a very exciting study called Take Control, Period. Love the name. Dr. Ying Ling is going to tell us more. First off, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. So um, why don't you tell us about this study, Take Control, Period? So Take Control, Period is a study that I'm very excited about. And it was born out of the plague of heavy menstrual bleeding that we know so many women experience. We know that for all women, about 51% of them are affected by heavy menstrual bleeding. And this number goes up if they have an underlying bleeding disorder to as high as 90%. And heavy menstrual bleeding can affect women in all sorts of ways. We know that it can cause fatigue, difficulty with concentration, and overall leads to poor quality of life. Part of this is due to the bleeding itself, and a big component of it is due to iron deficiency that happens as a result of the heavy menstrual bleeding. Yeah, and can you define, what do you mean when you say heavy menstrual bleeding? So there are various definitions for heavy menstrual bleeding. We don't have a solid definition for it, and different organizations will quantify bleeding in different ways. And in real life, it actually happens to be quite challenging to quantify the amount of bleeding, which is part of the problem with even diagnosing the condition. But heavy menstrual bleeding is commonly you know, bleeding that leads to complications such as anemia or iron deficiency and can be manifested with flooding or passing big clots or even leaking through menstrual products during a period. And, you know, I can think back to when I was a medical student and taking a history and even trying to quantify hemoptysis or a GI bleed. And the staff would say, well, you know, how much did they vomit up? I don't know. They didn't put it in a measuring cup and then write it down. So your point's well taken. It's probably pretty hard to actually define. So what's going on with your study? What's the goal of the study and where are things at right now? So because we know that heavy menstrual bleeding causes all of these problems with fatigue, poor concentration, and poor quality of life in these women in their most productive years of life, we do our best to try to improve the symptoms of iron deficiency and heavy menstrual bleeding. The way that we commonly do this in our clinics is through a medication called tranexamic acid, which helps slow bleeding down and by giving iron supplementation to improve iron deficiency. However, we know that in clinic, despite, you know, lots of time spent with patients counseling them on how to take this properly, patients often come back to clinic and tell us they've had difficulty either from side effects or they just don't like taking medications. And despite our best efforts, they're not taking these medications and they're still having the ongoing problem. And because we started noticing this, we developed this website called Take Control Period as an easy way, a multimodal interactive website for women to go to as a resource to help them take the tranexamic acid and iron and hopefully improve their symptoms and their quality of life, which are reduced because of their heavy menstrual bleeding. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great initiative. And I think it was maybe Dr. Vandermeulen that mentioned the website before, but we'll make sure it's in our show notes. So what are some pearls then for family doctors or residents? You know, you have a person in front of you, they have heavy menstrual bleeding. I always sort of thought, you know, one good option is oral contraceptive pill. And then certainly Dr. Schulzberg taught me about tranexamic acid. Is that 
knowledge now out of date, what's the sort of pragmatic tips? So in terms of using tranexamic acid, we know that it's very useful in a lot of circumstances, including in trauma, in surgery, and in postpartum hemorrhage. And it's been studied in heavy menstrual bleeding as well. We know that it can be safe in a lot of different settings. And a lot of women who take this successfully liken it to turning off a heavily running faucet when they're taking it properly. So we always recommend that women take it as soon as they start bleeding, right up until the end of their cycle. Uh, but it is a bit challenging to take in that they have to take it three times a day. And they can be quite big tablets. Hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense. Even just the point about, you know, you take it when the bleeding starts as opposed to you're taking this all of the time. But you're right, three times a day is kind of tricky. And also sometimes it's easier to remember just to take one thing every day. And then what about uh, oral contraceptive pill? Is that still one effective approach or is my knowledge now dated? No, oral contraceptive pills are still uh, an effective approach. And from a hematologist perspective, we don't often prescribe oral contraceptive pills, but we work very closely with our family doctor and gynecology colleagues to work in conjunction to help control heavy menstrual bleeding. I guess it's not so new anymore, but even considering a hormonal intrauterine device is one method that is being used more and more commonly to help control heavy menstrual bleeding. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a good point you raise that you're doing this in concert with the family doctor or, or gynecologist, maybe. I also kind of wonder as maybe us general internists should become more familiar with prescribing things like oral contraceptive pill and, you know, now tranexamic acid in this scenario. Any thoughts on that? That is a really good point. And even for our perspective, when we have a clinic where we see lots of women with heavy menstrual bleeding, it feels a bit silly to not also be super comfortable at least starting a prescription for an oral contraceptive pill. But I agree with you completely in that I personally don't have a whole ton of experience in that realm, but it would be very important to get more familiar with that, I think. Okay, cool. So in addition to the website, I understand that this initiative really started with a study that you presented at ASH. So do you want to tell us a bit more about this needs assessment study that you worked on? Yeah, um, absolutely. So as I mentioned, when we see patients in clinic, we started noticing that they weren't adhering to their tranexamic acid and oral iron supplementation as much as we would like, especially since we know it works really well in treating iron deficiency and heavy menstrual bleeding. So what we did was a needs assessment survey, even before completely launching the website, just to see where the problems were and what was the actual number of patients that were adhering to tranexamic acid and iron. And what we found was that despite being a clinic where we feel very comfortable starting these medications and counseling patients on how to take them and the expected side effects and how to troubleshoot those side effects, we found that adherence to tranexamic acid was quite poor, actually only 33%, and adherence to oral iron was similarly quite poor at only 40%. And when we interviewed patients and healthcare practitioners um, like the nurses in our clinic or other specialists that work alongside us with regards to what were the problems that patients were having with taking these medications for tranexamic acid, it was that the pills were big, that some of them had side effects, some of them wouldn't remember to take it right up until the bleeding stops. For oral iron, it's very commonly, um, as we all know, gastrointestinal upset. And a lot of the times it's challenging with regards to food interactions, medication interactions. And we used all of this information when we built our website. 
We have a frequently asked question section for each of our treatments, the tranexamic acid and the oral iron. And a lot of our website focuses on ways to troubleshoot some of these frequently asked questions so that patients have that ready at hand when they're trying to take these medications rather than needing to wait, say, two, three months until their follow-up appointment. Yeah, that that sounds great. It also makes it seem like we need like a long-acting tranexamic acid or something because clearly people aren't taking it. And it's always interesting when you hear about the reasons why, you know, like the pills are too big. Huh, never realized that as a doctor prescribing in all these all these years. All right, Ying, so I'm going to stop talking and try to summarize all the stuff that we talked about. You let me know if I got this right or wrong for our listeners. So you and your team... Um, have created this website called Take Control Period. Um, The website itself was initiated following this needs assessment. And this needs assessment showed us that, first off, heavy menstrual bleeding is common. And although we have effective treatments for it, people aren't necessarily taking the treatments. And you sort of explore to understand why is that the case, and then translated that into a website to hopefully empower uh, people to stick to these treatments. Do I have that right? That is exactly right. I could not have said it better myself. Okay, perfect. Emilio, leave that in the show notes. All right. Um, well, Dr. Ling, uh, terrific to chat with you uh, about your work. Uh, anything else you wanted to add or anything we forgot to discuss? I would say the only thing I would add is that this uh, podcast episode is highlighting a lot of incredible initiatives. And I think it's really awesome that women's health and, you know, a hematology spin on it is being focused on right now. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course, bonus for me, I'm learning all sorts of new pearls and thinking a lot about a nice one-page summary to summarize this and also um, get us GIM docs more comfortable prescribing oral contraceptive pill, tranexamic acid, etc. All right. Thanks again, Dr. Ling. Pleasure to have you. All right. So next up, we're going to transition from take control period to a study called Iron Mom, led by Dr. Jamil Abdul-Rahman. And I found out that he is no longer a fellow staff physician. So uh, first off, congratulations and welcome to Staff Life. Thanks. So tell me more about this study, Iron Mom. Uh, Our listeners will be very excited to hear about it. Yeah. So we did this project when I was a fellow. Uh, So I did this with Dr. Michelle Schulzberg over at St. Michael's Hospital. So she would often get calls about managing iron deficiency and pregnancy. And we just realized that this is such a common issue and it's easy to fix. And really that's where Iron Mom was born. So we know at baseline, iron deficiency in young women is a very common problem. About 10% of teenage girls and women of childbearing age in developed countries will have iron deficiency. And those from minority groups and those from lower income are more commonly affected. So then in pregnancy, these iron demands go up with uh, expansion of red blood cells, development of placenta and fetus, so worsening iron deficiency. And then again, with labor and delivery, there can be blood loss, which even more iron deficiency. So if iron deficiency is severe enough, it can cause iron deficiency anemia, which is problematic. We know in mom, this is associated with preterm delivery, C-section, and red blood cell transfusions. In the baby, it's associated with low birth weight, admission to the NICU, and even long-term effects on mental and psychomotor development. So the good thing is that iron deficiency is easy to detect with simple blood tests, just ferritin and CBC, and it's easy to treat the vast majority of the time with iron pills. And there's good data, there's systematic review data, that daily oral iron supplementation in pregnancy decreases the risk of maternal anemia. So although iron deficiency in pregnancy is simple to diagnose and easy to treat, 
It often goes undiagnosed and untreated due to low awareness of its implications and multiple competing clinical priorities in busy obstetrical clinics. So IronWOM is a quality improvement project we did at St. Michael's Hospital, which is an inner-city tertiary care center. They deliver about 3,000 babies a year. So the IronWOM is a toolkit. It's a QI project toolkit. The toolkit has clinical pathways, educational resources, adjusted laboratory requisitions, and standardized iron prescriptions. It was made through collaboration with hematology, obstetrics, transfusion medicine, nursing, and laboratory medicine. So uh, let me make sure I've summarized this correctly so far. So the whole idea behind Iron Mom is iron deficiency in pregnancy is common, treatable, and if untreated, bad things can occur to mom, bad things can occur to baby. So far, so good? Exactly. That's it. And then you guys just took it one step further and said, all right, listen, we clearly have a problem. Here's our, you know, toolkit of the ways that we're going to try to fix this problem. So what was in the toolkit? You mentioned changing lab requisitions, perhaps so people order more ferritin and CBCs. Um, what else was in that toolkit? So the big thing was algorithms. They were each set at the routine OB visit, so we didn't add any additional visit. And the OB physician would look at the CBC, so the hemoglobin and the ferritin. And then based on that, they would follow the algorithm to determine do I need iron replacement or I do not need iron replacement? So pretty straightforward. There was educational resources for the patients. So two, one was for awareness of iron deficiency and why we're testing for it. And then if they were iron deficient, they received another educational document on what it is and how to manage it. So foods that are high in iron. Uh, and then also educational resources for the OB physicians as well in terms of the different types of iron replacements, the different pills, and the cost associated with it. We also changed the requisitions. So we put ferritin closer to the top near the CBC, so that would be more readily available and easily found and checked. We standardize the iron prescription, so you just need to sign your name and it's good to go. You don't need to write out everything. Uh, and those were the big things. Yeah, I like those. You know, uh, there's a lot of sort of nudges that probably helped a lot. And I've read the study a couple times. I'm a big fan of it. So I know this worked, but I'm curious, what do you think it was like? What was the single aspect that made this work? Yeah. So I think the big thing was the awareness because we compared uh, pre and post quality improvements to see did we make a difference? So we saw there was a 10 times increase in the rate of ferritin testing. But even before we officially launched the toolkit, we saw a bump in the increase in ferritin just because we'd been talking about it so much with the obstetricians. So I think the culture change was the biggest thing. But I mean, that lasted for the year. I mean, we only have data for a year. So I think the constant reminders, like we put posters everywhere, all over their office. We put brochures everywhere, awareness, awareness, awareness. So really, it's just small changes to make big clinical outcomes. Yeah, it's, it's certainly impressive. And if I remember correctly, not only did you improve rates of ferritin laboratory tests being done, but it also seemed to maybe impact the need for blood transfusion postpartum. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So we had a few outcomes. So our first outcome was the ferritin testing, which we said increased by tenfold. We also looked at antepartum anemia. So we defined that as hemoglobin under 100. So we looked at five years pre-intervention and then one year post-intervention. And there was a decrease. So pre-intervention, 13.5% uh, of women were anemic. After intervention, 10.6%. And that was uh, statistically significant. We also looked at red blood cell transfusions. We divided that into during pregnancy, and then post-pregnancy and the six weeks after. And again, that also dropped. So during delivery, it went to 1.2% had at least one transfusion. 
after the intervention that's dropped down to 0.8%. After delivery, previously 2.3% had at least one RBC transfusion. And then after the intervention, this dropped down to 1.6%. And both of those were statistically significant. Yeah, very impressive stuff for sure. And I guess now Iron Mom is, you know, a couple years behind you. Any ideas on uh, updates? Is it still in place at St. Mike's? Uh, Is it being rolled out elsewhere? Yeah. So a big thing that Dr. Michelle Schulberg worked on was uh, digital implementation. So Iron Mom was completely paper-based, right? But with everyone having their phone and everything digitized, we really want to digitize things. So there is a Iron Mom app, which patients can access, physicians can access, and it pretty much is those clinical algorithms to tell you, okay, CBC, ferritin, do you need iron placement? Do you not need iron placement? So just to make it more available. Yes, and right now I am looking at my phone and I'll be downloading the Iron Mom app. All right, Jamil, so if I can summarize the impact of Iron Mom, ferritin testing went up, Anemia went down, rates of blood transfusion potentially going down, an app that came out as a result, and a lot of sort of knowledge translation and information going out there about iron deficiency, when to treat, how to treat. Does that sound about right? Yeah, you got it. All right, uh, Jamil. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this study. A really impressive work, and I will definitely be downloading this app. Great. Thanks for having me. All right, so next up on the Rapid Fire episode is Dr. Sumeda Arya. Dr. Arya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And it's quite nice because I got to work with you when you were an R1 and probably as an R2, and now you're a heme fellow, and you know I get to work with your sister who's an R1, so uh, even more exciting to have you on this show. And you know the title of the article you published really caught my eye. So quotes, everything was blood when it comes to me understanding the lived experience of women with inherited bleeding disorders. That's powerful stuff. So why don't you tell us more about this research project? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the quote that you mentioned there, Mike, was actually inspired by one of our participants. And the rationale or the motivating force behind this particular project was to better describe the lived experiences of patients and particularly women with inherited bleeding disorders especially because to the best of our knowledge, no one had really looked into this before. And anecdotally, just from speaking to women and attending conferences, we realized there was such a gap in the literature with regards to their lived experiences. And so that quote was with respect to one of our themes around misdiagnoses and diagnostic delay. And I have the full quote up here. One of our participants said to me, everything was blood when it comes to me and they didn't understand me. I was born with a bleeding disorder, and before I was advised to go to my current treatment center, I was misdiagnosed. So for the past 23 years, I was taking the wrong medication and the wrong treatment. And that was just incredibly striking to me, the impact that, you know, this misdiagnosis and the diagnostic delay had on this particular individual and really encompassed a lot of what we were trying to delve into and and was the inspiration for the title for this particular uh, paper. Yeah, no, very powerful stuff. And um, maybe for the many general internists who listen, who I hope listen to the show, um, what are some of the common inherited bleeding disorders? Are we talking about hemophilia or are we talking about von Willebrand or is there something else I don't even know about? Yeah, and I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because absolutely there's so much out there and the inherited bleeding disorders present so heterogeneously. And there's also quite a common misconception that 
hemophilia is a disease of men and it doesn't affect women. And it's really in the last, I would say, you know, a couple of years that there's been quite a paradigm shift into acknowledging that women can be affected by hemophilia as well by being symptomatic hemophilia carriers. So the main things in response to your question that we would be considering are von Willebrand's disease, but also definitely hemophilia for both men and women who are symptomatic carriers. And of course, there's a huge array of rarer disease that even some hematologists might not see quite as much, including disorders of platelet function or rare factor deficiencies, which some of our participants were also affected by. Gotcha. And yeah, tell me a, a bit more about um, your study and sort of the population included and what you learned as a result. So we did a qualitative study, and actually it was supplemented. It became a bit of a research program. So we did a qualitative study with both men and women with inherited bleeding disorders. And we also did two nationwide surveys of healthcare providers and of patients. So it was mixed methodology, qualitative and quantitative. So the specific paper with the title, Everything Was Blood, when it comes to me, was a qualitative study. And we interviewed 15 women across Canada and partnered with the Canadian Hemophilia Society, which was really phenomenal because they're such strong advocates. And so we actually had people who were members of the CHS and patients and patient advocates in of themselves who helped inform the methodology. So we interviewed 15 participants, and essentially there were four primary themes that we found from our qualitative analysis. One, uncertainties surrounding the diagnosis two, conceptualization of patients' experiences through family bleeding histories, three, intensity of bleeding symptoms, and four, the impact of bleeding on identity and daily life. So those are four of our kind of main thematic findings from this work. Hmm. Yeah, and I think those are some really nice areas that you've touched on. It makes me just think back to when I was interviewing Dr. Vandermeulen, this idea of maybe contextualization isn't the right word, but contextualizing it around, well, that's what it was like for my sister or my mom, and then presuming that is then, quote unquote, normal. Were those the types of things that you had identified or have I missed the mark there? No, absolutely. And it was really great because I think it corroborated a lot of Dr. Vandermeulen's findings. And it was interesting that we were able to see some similar things. So part under intensity of bleeding symptoms, one of the sub-themes under that was postpartum hemorrhage. So there were three sub-themes. One was heavy menstrual bleeding. The second was postpartum hemorrhage. And the third was procedural bleeding. And really similarly to what Dr. Vandermeulen's work found, we realized that women with inherited bleeding disorders didn't always have the ability to identify when they actually had postpartum hemorrhage. So I remember one woman saying, you know, after giving birth, I remember hearing them say, where's all of this blood coming from? And, and I had no clue or, or likening their blood to a waterfall or that even being the first time they were diagnosed. And so it was really, really quite striking to hear how severe these bleeding manifestations could be and how it could even be the first presentation for some women. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think we can do to maybe identify women earlier so that, you know, we aren't learning about this for the first time postpartum? What are some good questions that listeners can sort of add to their list of things to ask? That's a great question. And I think it really depends on, you know, who the patient's seeing, because of course, if it's a primary care provider or emergency room physician versus a hematologist, there's different access to tests and questions. But I think the biggest thing that I've realized from doing qualitative work is how important it is just to start by asking really non-judgmental, open-ended questions. Because sometimes if you start asking right away, you know, closed-ended questions, patients might just automatically say, oh, my periods are normal. And that discussion might not actually 
go any further. And so usually I just ask patients to describe things really broadly, but then also tease them apart more specifically. And there are tools such as um, the MCMDM1 score that we often use to get a better sense. And there, there's limitations to that as well, given that it looks at things like access to care. Not everyone might have equitable access to care. But I think being aware of the different toolkits that are out there are super helpful. And patients can actually use online kits as well or questionnaires as well to get a better sense of whether or not their bleeding is normal or abnormal. But I think being non-judgmental is really, really key. I totally agree. And also the idea of open-ended, I think all too often in medicine, I mean, sometimes we're so freaking busy, you know, so we have a checklist of questions we're asking, but that doesn't exactly lend itself well to really exploring the information. So like, what would be a good open-ended question if there was sort of one open-ended question that you found works when you're taking a history? Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, it'll depend on what their hemostatic challenges have been, because if someone's had wisdom teeth removed, that might be a really good thing to pry about. And so sometimes I just start by asking patients, you know, tell me about any problems that you've had with bleeding and see what they come up with and then try to probe those. I think, of course, there are some fault lines with that approach, too, because, people might completely normalize their bleeding histories depending on totally. what their family histories are like. And so then I'll probe much more specifically. But I think getting a sense of what their challenges have been, of course, acknowledging that hemostatic challenges for men and women are quite different with menstruation and childbirth and different people might have had different procedural challenges. So I try to get a sense of what those have looked like in someone's lifetime. Yeah, I, I like that. And quick question, when you say hemostatic challenges, do you sort of mean like... Uh, surgeries and procedures and whatnot? Or is it something else that I don't know anything about? Totally. I should have made that clear. Exactly. It could even be things like, you know, most people have been to the dentist. And so sometimes even when I'm doing like bone marrows, I, people forget they've had freezing because they've been to the dentist. And so I often ask about that. Like, have you ever had any dental procedures or, and like, how did that go? And sometimes I people like will say, you know, my dentist said that they were, you know, doing something simple, like removing a cavity. And i bled like no one they'd ever seen. And so that kind of helps raise flags in my mind. Yeah, that's quite nice. And it also reminds me that I haven't gone to the dentist since COVID started. So something for me to add to my to-do list. Well, thanks so much. That was uh, terrific. And I learned a lot. Let me see if I can kind of um, summarize some of the big takeaway points. So I think from the qualitative work that you've done, which mainly focused on women's lived experience, women who have uh, inherited bleeding disorders, you sort of were able to break down some major themes. And part of it was about the context, the intensity, the impact. I'm forgetting the fourth. Uh, and I think one of the best pearls is this idea of if you want to find out more you got to have open-ended questions uh, and then following up thereafter with more specific questions. Does that sound uh, about right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Terrific. All right. Well, thanks so much for, um, for joining on the show today. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, congrats again on this publication. Thank you for having me. All right, listeners. Well, we've just spent the last, I don't know, 25 minutes or so hearing about some outstanding uh, research projects uh, initiated by some outstanding hematology fellows here at the University of Toronto. So I thought now would be a perfect time to welcome Dr. Gillian Hawker onto the show. Uh, Dr. Hawker needs no introduction. She's professor of medicine at the University of Toronto uh, and also the chair of medicine. So first and foremost, Dr. Hawker, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. So as you just heard, we've heard about so many terrific budding stars in, in hematology research. 
I'm curious, how are things going at the University of Toronto maintaining this talent? And what can we do to make sure we have outstanding hematologists moving forward? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. Thank you. I think hematology is incredibly important. But what we've got really in Ontario is this sort of two-tiered system where we've got people that do cancer-related hematology being paid a fixed salary and being part of a whole cancer system and kind of the haves in medicine. And then you've got the people that are doing quote unquote benign hematology, which isn't so benign and which is a lot of work, getting paid substantially less and being relatively underappreciated by the hospitals in which they work. And just as an example, if you think about the day-to-day running of any hospital, any acute care hospital, surgery couldn't happen, ICUs couldn't run, trauma couldn't be cared for, None of these things could happen without hematology. And yet I don't think most hospital leaders and most academics actually realize how important that is. Yes, and certainly as a general internal medicine doctor myself, oh yes, I absolutely know how crucial it is to have hematologists and great hematologists close on hand. So I guess we've identified uh, at least one issue, this idea of a pretty big pay differential between the two, and perhaps this idea of differences in prestige. Any other reasons why you think there might be a bit of an issue here? Well, I think that by and large, our training tends to focus on the acute and what's somewhat exciting. And people may not realize all the opportunities to help our patients with respect to bleeding and clotting disorders. I'm a rheumatologist, for instance, and we have patients that have antiphospholipid antibodies and clot extraordinarily commonly. And, you know, there are many fascinating both inherited and non-inherited bleeding and clotting disorders that really need to be taken care of. And I don't think we talk that up. I think, again, we spend more time talking about the acute leukemias, lymphomas, than the bread and butter, which is important. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess part of it is obviously trying to shift that culture and and shift this idea of what's quote unquote uh, important. What else do you think we could potentially do to move this along? So there's also a bit of a, I think, a bit of a less respect or less appreciation of the quote unquote benign folks and an inability, again, because of the structure of how we're paid, inability for people to spend time with one foot in both camps. So I think for most people with respect to lifestyle, a combination of taking care of cancer patients, hematology cancer patients, and people that have bleeding and clotting disorders would probably be best, but you can't do that very easily. And so it's really rigid in terms of lifestyle and sort of being able to plan a holistic perspective. Yeah, that that certainly makes sense to me. And I think the other thing that I've come to realize, mainly through working with uh, Dr. Michelle Schulzberg, is sort of all of the research that's ongoing in this space and how important it is. So, you know, earlier on the show, we talked about what a poor job we're doing of identifying pregnant women who are iron deficient, and then talking about uh, issues related to bleeding disorders, issues related to postpartum uh, hemorrhage, which I guess is also related to bleeding. But it's been really fascinating for me to hear about, you know, the sort of non-heme-onc research. And I presume you'd agree. (laughs) Yeah, of course, as a woman, I would agree. But I think 
maybe you're hinting at, which I would not disagree with, that, you know, women's disorders, women's health disorders, women's health period is often not a priority or seen as a priority, or it's just invisible often, because many of the people that are running the healthcare system may not see how important some of these issues are. And for any woman who's gone through her life, through all these multiple stages, there are huge number of issues that can only be effectively dealt with by a hematologist. And again, I never heard that in my training. I never even heard it talked about. And yet it's critically important. Yeah, I think you and I both, and especially as general internists, we need more teaching on women's health issues, women's heme health issues. I have the good fortune of locuming up in Sault Ste. Marie still, where I am the hematologist on call. But oftentimes I find myself, you know, texting Dr. Nikki Goldberg or Dr. Michelle Schulzberg. And it's like, geez, I should know a lot of these things. So that, that point's well taken as I think back to my training as an internal medicine resident. Yeah. I mean, you may not want me to talk about this, but I'll talk about it. I think the other thing is that we really need people to stay in academic medicine and role model for trainees. So you just mentioned some great examples. Michelle Schulzberg in particular has really really been a bright light for attracting people to non-malignant hematology. And I think people underestimate how important it is to have role models like that in clinical training that show you, wow, this can be a fun and exciting specialty. I think if you ask most docs, you know, how did you end up being this or that, they can usually pinpoint it to some attending someplace, sometime during training where you saw somebody that was just exactly what the kind of doctor you wanted to be. And I think we need more of those people, again, not only because there's clinical patient need, but also because our learners need to be role modeled to understand that there's a really vibrant academic career that can happen. Because if I can't keep these trainees in academic medicine, then they don't get as much exposure to our learners as as I would frankly like them to have and therefore the role modeling. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, just how important role modeling and, and mentors are, of course. And I think that's a perfect segue as next up, we're going to have Dr. Michelle Schulzberg herself to end off this rapid fire women's team health episode. And before that occurs, though, anything else you wanted to talk about that maybe I didn't bring up or any final thoughts? I think the other major thing with hematology is that obviously we order a lot of lab tests. Guilty. You know, blood tests. Think about order sets, et cetera, so many. And rheumatologists are are some of the worst. You know, again, if we don't have people that are really investing in non-malignant hematology, we won't have people really thinking about how to maximize our efficiency of use of services. You know, the whole quality improvement, continuous quality improvement that needs to happen in all of medicine, but hematology is so critical in terms of identifying where we're overusing or perhaps underusing, but probably more overusing. Yep. I would certainly agree with that. All right. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining on the show today. Really appreciate it and appreciate your time. Thank you, Mike. All right. Uh, last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Michelle Schulzberg. So, you know, we've had a chance to talk to all of your students, mentees, uh, etc. And now it's really exciting to talk to the star of the show. So welcome back to the show, uh, Dr. Scholzberg. 
Thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be here. Please call me Michelle. Okay, will do. So I think one, you know, one thing I just couldn't help but realize is that it seems like maybe, just maybe, women's health issues ain't getting the same attention as non-women's health issues. Is that fair to say or am I totally off base? I think that's very fair to say, Mike. In fact, there have been many publications that describe uh, the discrepancy um, both in the provision of clinical care, but also in the research uh, pertaining to women's health. In fact, there was a, a recent publication by two really amazing hematologists, one Dr. Angela Wayan and Dr. Paula James, published in RPTH recently, entitled Sexism in Bleeding Disorders. And there they chronicle many different layers of uh, health inequity amongst women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like we can sort of talk about this issue as a women's health issue, but you kind of realize that this is not specific to health. This is not specific to healthcare issues and probably a reflection of something bigger. So to go a bit more meta, I want to now talk a little bit, bit about sexism in medicine. Should that be for the healthcare issues we focus on or maybe the experiences of uh, female providers? Thanks, Mike. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree that individuals that identify as women certainly experience many different types of discrimination on the basis of their gender, so much so that I think it becomes hard to tease out the experience because it's so entrenched and deeply normalized. And I think that there's also probably a very deeply embedded fear that if you blow the whistle, somehow that can worsen the discrimination. And so it's it's definitely present and highly prevalent, but like anything that's become so woven institutionally and also just woven into our own personal and cultural experience as women, it's, it's sometimes really hard to put your finger on when you feel as if you are being discriminated against because you're a woman. Absolutely. And I'm sure a big part of it comes to this aspect of culture and the fear of sort of standing up or speaking out. Uh, Can you talk more uh, to that point? For sure. I think it's easy to acknowledge the very obvious, very blatant examples of sexism. So it's easier to talk about, you know, the time where a colleague would have said something inappropriate about a woman's physical appearance or sexualized a woman inappropriately in the professional environment. And even when that occurs with patients, and easy to think about the times where you're not even identified as a relevant member of the healthcare team. But it's a lot harder to think about the more subtle and implicit indicators of sexism. So for example, the times where people would avoid eye contact with you the times where you would be referred to by your first name or referred to even with a pet name. These are sort of the more subtle things that are tough to even remember because it becomes so normalized. And not all examples of sexism are done with the intention of harm. And so there are many colleagues, men and women, who I would identify as allies 
but who don't necessarily themselves have the ability to identify the times where they behaved or said something inappropriate. And the truth is because it has nothing to do with intention. It has to do with how the other person feels. And so I would really encourage um, current and future allies to really examine themselves and to remember that it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with intention. And just to really try to empathize and think about how that other person feels or would feel if something was said even if the intention was to give them a compliment or to make them feel good, which is so hard because that asks a lot about people that requires a tremendous amount of insight. And so if we're not talking really openly about these things, it's actually impossible to do. And so I'm giving even still some very obvious examples. You know, there are, there are other examples where I have grants that are submitted and are evaluated by my peers. And there are comments made about how junior I am. And it's very challenging to examine that objectively, because I often ask myself, am I really that junior? Would that have been asked of a male colleague who is at the same stage of career? And so it's tricky. (laughs) It's really tricky. Uh, you know, I think some of the experiences you're alluding to are related to, you know, clinical, you know, like day-to-day clinical work. But it sounds like also in the research world, and you don't have to look too closely on Twitter um, to realize the issue that exists. But yeah, can you talk more about maybe some sexism that you've experienced related to your work as a, as a researcher? Well, I think I have to start by saying that at the University of Toronto, I've been, in fact, encouraged to pursue a clinical and research focus on women's health. And so when I came on as junior faculty, the importance of that was recognized, and I was very much encouraged to pursue that. That said, like many investigators and scientists, I know what failure feels like and have been met with failure on many, many occasions. And so it's really hard for me to say, is that because I'm a woman or is that because I'm a woman interested in women's health? Or is that just because maybe my ideas were not necessarily that important at the time or didn't align with strategic directions of, you know, whatever granting agency I was applying to, for example, or maybe my work is just not that good which are all possibilities. (laughs) But there have been times, as I said before, where the commentary provided by peer reviewers, I do feel as if is colored by the fact that I'm a woman with an expressed research focus on women's health. And a lot of that pertains to me being junior, this being early in my career. And I've even had comments made to me about that regarding my leadership roles within the hospital. And, oh, that's very early on in your career. Whereas if you look at other men who've held leadership positions, many of them were appointed, you know, when they were two to five years younger than I am. And so I've had very candid conversations with mentors of mine who have held leadership roles and I asked them explicitly, did people tell you that you were junior or question whether or not you were ready in your career because you were junior? And they all said, no, Michelle, that did not happen. And I think that this is sexism. For sure. And I I think a lot uh, about how much of it is sort of being cast from the outside in versus cast from the inside out. Because certainly amongst the trainees that I have the good fortune to work with and mentor, I try to have a good sense of 
where is the direction of the force coming from? Clearly in both directions. And then I think, you know, what can I as a single physician do to improve the problem? Any thoughts on that? I mean, first of all, thank you for being sensitive to it, because I think that that's the first step. And I think it's important for all of us to acknowledge where privilege exists and to really reflect on what it must feel like or imagine what it must feel like. Because if, you know, I can't really know what it would feel like to be an individual who's of, for example, of a visible minority, because I'm not. But I can imagine what some of that might feel like. But the truth is, is that I need to be taught and I need to be open and I need to listen. And I need to also acknowledge that I'll never really know what that feels like. And so I think doing exactly what you are doing is, you know, saying that, you know, I think that this is important. And I think I need to be sensitive to women around me who may be at risk for experiencing sexism in their career. And I need to connect them with other women who can help guide them and also to express to them that you're their ally and that you would like to provide opportunities where they occur. And so one of the hardest and most important things to do as a mentor is a mentor and an ally actually is to give up opportunities so that other people around you can reap the benefits of those opportunities. And so promotion, I think, is really, really important as a mentor. But I think promotion is also a really important quality of a true ally to step aside and to say, you know what, I think that I've I've done enough. Let me give this opportunity to somebody else who might be exposed to more barriers than I have been exposed to. Yeah, I, I like that. Step aside, for sure. And I know we are, you know, coming up towards the end of time. I, I definitely want to reiterate your point that beyond sex, there's a lot to talk about in terms of race. And some of the examples you gave about how we can sort of work as allies, it does require energy and activation energy. So what I wonder about is, you know, in the ideal world, what could we do to shift the culture, change the culture, or make it such that it doesn't require energy for people to do the right thing? A tough question to answer, but... I'll hand it over to you. That's such a big question. I think a lot of that has to do with leadership. And, you know, for example, at St. Michael's Hospital, we are extremely fortunate to have Dr. Sharon Strauss as our physician-in-chief, the first female physician-in-chief. And we also have our deputy physician-in-chief is also a female, Dr. Natalie Wong. And the chair of the Department of Medicine is also a female, Dr. Jillian Hawker. And I'm being very... Uh, cautious in using the word female. I know that sometimes people take offense at the use of the word female, but I'm, I'm specifically using it because we're talking about sex here and, and not gender. Um, and so I think that ensuring that we have representation at the level of leadership is critical. Um, and I don't think that we are anywhere near a point where we have succeeded in uh, having truly diversified representation at the level of leadership, nowhere even close. But I think that that's critical. We need to have people that look like other people that truly represents the, the population. If we're going to strive for equity in healthcare, if we're going to strive for equity in research, we're going to um, hope for equity in many, many different realms like education and finances and et cetera. 
So I think that we're, we're getting somewhere, you know, we're going in the right direction, but there are decades of work ahead and we have to keep moving forward and we have to keep identifying allies. Yep. And probably something we could spend an entire podcast uh, talking about, many podcasts talking about. Well, Michelle, it's been terrific getting to talk to all of your research team members, whether it comes to you know, how do we step up when it comes to making the diagnosis of iron deficiency in pregnancy? How can we do a better job about talking to young women about bleeding disorders, especially postpartum hemorrhage? How can we improve the treatment of, of women who are iron deficient? How can we better understand the lived experience of women with bleeding disorders? And now we have the chance to sort of end by talking about something much bigger, a much, much bigger issue, which is sexism in medicine. So thank you for, for your time and all of the work and leadership that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Mike. Uh, it's, it's amazing to have been given this opportunity to not only personally speak about the things that I'm passionate about, but I'm also very grateful that you've extended that opportunity to our future leaders. So thank you. Oh, happy to. And I think two pearls that you've left me with are for me and, and, and you know, and other people in positions of power, not that I have much power, but ask yourself, are you going to step up and promote somebody other than yourself? Or should you step aside and make that happen for somebody else? So those are the two things I'm going to think about. Am I stepping up or am I stepping aside? Both of which can be helpful to promoting other people around me. Thanks so much, Mike. All right. Thanks, Michelle. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.